My name is Jordan Johnson. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor, and we are an elder-led congregation, and so I join those two brothers in under the Lord Jesus seeking to faithfully lead this body to value what the Word of God values, to declare what the Word of God values, and to truly see a Christocentric, bibliocentric church to the glory of our amazing God. So I hope that you will take our request uh, on the pew back in front of you, that card there. How can we pray for you? How can we love you? How can we minister to you if you're online that you would do the same with the prompt there? Because we really want to minister to you and come alongside you and walk with you and help you take your next steps toward Jesus Christ as you are, we pray, responding to his work and his call upon your life. Let's seek God in prayer, and then you go, Acts 2, and we're going to walk through the passage God has for us today. Our God, we thank you this day for just the joy of joining with brothers and sisters in Christ, having those who are not part of our faith family here join us in that, and us declaring to you that it is not us, it is not our strength, it is you, Philippians 2 says, who work in to produce your good pleasure in and through our lives. We thank you that sin has been defeated, that we are forever forgiven, that we are forever loved, that we are yours because we, O oh God, have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus, that your riches, O oh God, have been given to us at the expense of Jesus. And O oh Jesus, we thank you for coming. Jesus, we honor you today. We revere you today. We celebrate you today. We seek to live and love from a posture of how you have lived in our place, how you have loved us by dying in our place. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, as we've heard your, your word, we've seen it on the pages of your word, God, now I pray that you would give us eyes to behold Christ in and through the text, for we know the Bible is a Christocentric book. It is about Jesus. And we thank you that when you save us, that the same gospel that saved us continues to save us, continues to sanctify us, continues to give us gospel power to live as singles, as widows, widowers, married folk, everywhere in between. So, Lord, we lift your name up now. We recognize that we need you to help us, not just to hear your word, but to understand your word, for me to preach your word, and for all of us to submit to your word. So, Lord, we surrender to you now, and we pray that you would speak. Take a moment there where you're at, and would you say, Lord, speak to me, speak to us by your word. We love you, Lord, and we know it's only because you first loved us in the gospel. 
So really what we say to you is we love you too. We pray it by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the glory of your name, Father, in Jesus' name. And we all say, I'm not sure what images come into your mind when you hear the word church. But I'm pretty sure, and I'm assuming here, that the way you think about church, the word church, and the way the first recipients of that word church thought about church. In the Greek New Testament, the word translated church is the word ekklesia. In fact, would you say that with me? Ekklesia. Welcome to Greek. Ek, out of. Kaleo, called out. A church is an ecclesia. A local church is an ecclesia, a group of individuals who have been called out of the world, out of finding their hope, out of finding their identity, out of finding their satisfaction, out of finding what they value as valuable. You've been called out of that, and you've been called into a group of individuals who have been changed by the God of the Bible through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and present ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have been called out, but not just called out, you've been called in too. But over the years, what happened in the church when she, in her very infant stage, realized that we are called out of the world and called into a common conviction with other people centered around Jesus Christ, that word began to lose its meaning for what it was originally intended to mean. In fact, our word church in English doesn't come from the Greek word. It comes from a German word, a German word church. And the German word church has the idea of a sacred place. And many people get their understanding today of what a church is based on the German understanding rather than the original understanding. Because this German understanding is that church is about brick and mortar. Church is about a place. Whereas the New Testament writers, particularly the Greek understanding of this movement was just that. It was a movement. It was a movement. It was a gospel movement. It was God saving a people for Himself and then moving them to be more like Christ and, and moving them from their individual mindsets into a group of people. So church is more about people than it is about the place. And so the church, what happened is, is it became an institution, and it became very, very, very controlled by very corrupt people. If you read 15th century church history, and you see the Middle Ages particularly, and the corruption that was in the life of local churches, and those corrupt leaders really held on to, this is a sacred place, and therefore we make the rules, we'll do what we want to do, and it began to lose this gospel movement. But then something awesome happened. God raised up a group of people in the 16th century named the Reformers. 
And what the Reformers did, as imperfect as they were, just like me and just like you, one way that God used the Reformers is to bring the Bible back to the center of the gathering and to allow the Bible. That's why the pulpit's in the center of the building, by the way. That's why the pulpit is here, because what we're saying is that everything we do is gathered around this, the Word of God. And and the Reformers in the 16th century, they're responsible for that. They're responsible for helping the church see we've got to allow the Word of God to dictate what we do. And so we stand in their stead today, by the way. We stand in their stead. Now, you say, well, I would have come up with that. Maybe not. But they did, and we praise God for that. But one of the main reformers to the English-speaking world was a man named William Tyndale. Tyndale was a man of great conviction, Great conviction that Christianity, if it were going to be the movement God designed it to be, then people, common folk, common people, they needed to be able to read the Bible in their common language. And so Tyndale made it his aim to take the Bible and to translate it so that common English-speaking folks could have what you have in your hand, a Bible, so that you could read it, so that you could see it, so that you could understand it. Well, this infuriated those corrupt leaders, because when you put the Bible back into people's hand, now they can see corruption that is, because now this becomes the rule book. This becomes the guidebook. This begins to put the spotlight on someone who says, I'm I'm, I'm sent by God, but what they're doing and how they're acting and what they're teaching is not in line with this. And so, it infuriated them. So much so, they strangled Tyndale. They put him up on a stake, and they burned him to death. And he prayed. His last prayer was this. Lord, as as flames are around him, his family's watching on, and flames are all around him. He's been strangled. He's about to die. Well, his last prayer is, Lord, open the eyes of the king. And I guess God answered that prayer by the most popular translation of the Bible given today is the King James Version which was given instead, regardless of King James' immoral lifestyle, God used Tyndale, and and Tyndale went into the ground as a martyr, and as church history says, he became a seed for the church and the Word of God to spread like never before. And the thing about the church of Jesus Christ, anytime you try to stamp us out, we just spread like crazy. Anytime you try to persecute us, we just go over here and start a church and go over there and start a church. And the growth of the gospel is something that is a beautiful thing to behold. And one thing Tyndale did, when he translated the Bible from the original language into English, is every time he came across the word church, he said congregation. If you read Tyndale's first translation, it says congregation rather than church. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to help the common people see that the church was not a place. The church was a congregation of people. People gathered around the Word of God and unmoved with the gospel of God. See, God's church has always been known as a movement. It's a movement. So, throughout church history, churchless Christianity is a contradiction in terms. It is a contradiction to say that I'm a Christian but you don't belong to a church. It's a contradiction. The church doesn't, you attending church doesn't make you a Christian, but if you are a Christian, then the natural application and result of that Christianity becomes 
by belonging to a place where your abstract, oh, me and Jesus, I read my Bible, it becomes very on earth where you say, I'm gathering with other people who also are gathered around this book so that God could be lifted high, so that the gospel could be clearly on display. You know, I meet people every single week. Met Thursday night, had an extended conversation with a, some of our neighbors in our community. I meet people every week who say, I'm a Christian. And after we talk a little bit about that and what that means, then I say, oh, what church do you belong to? What church do you belong to? It, it gets really awkward not on my end, because I embrace awkwardness, but on their end, it gets really awkward. And they're like, um, uh, yeah, about that. I was hurt. My wife was hurt. Children were hurt. And so we, we don't really see value we just sort of stay home and read our Bible and have our little Bible studies, and we go to Walmart, and we, we try to love people. I mean, we love Jesus. Listen, friend, if you're online or you're here, listen, you have no right. You have no right to give up on the church of Jesus Christ. You have no right. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. The work of God in history is His church. God didn't say, I'll build the 501c3 ministry, parachurch ministry. He didn't say that. He didn't say He would build your Bible study. He didn't say that. He didn't say He would build your particular outreach with all the things that you think are important in an outreach. He didn't say He'd build that. He said, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell, hell will try to get in, but don't let hell in by keeping me at the center of your gathering, and I'll keep hell out. You want hell to get in, just remove the Lord and His Word away from the center of all that we do and all that we say and all that we are as a body. So the work of God on the earth is the church. So if Jesus loves the church, you should too. I'm sorry that pastor hurt you. That was wrong. He shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry your family got neglected. That was wrong. I'm sorry that happened. I'm, I'm sorry that whatever you say is a barrier to me really belonging to a body, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because it was wrong there doesn't mean that every church is going to do you that way. And you've got to get to the point where you trust Jesus. And, and if a church is healthy on paper and they believe doctrinally what is true, then why don't you grab a paddle and come on in and help it be everything God wants her to be? It's amazing how many Christians have conclusions about the Bible being God's Word, Jesus being God's Son, Jesus is going to return one day, but they have no conviction about the local church. They like skip over those parts. They skip over the priority and the verses and the text that prioritize the church. So the first Christians, friends, they, 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 we are so removed from that in our world today, they would not understand. A lot of those Christians would look at the church in America and look around and say, are you serious? Are you serious? This is, is, this, is this what it's morphed into? This is never what it was intended to be, just an individualistic mindset. It was always about us, our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, our, 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 our. It's about us. So this is what we saw last week, and we're in this little mini-series called growth, particularly gospel growth. 
Next week, or two weeks from now, we will begin the book of Nehemiah. But for this week and the next week, we're going to look at this church in Acts and really try to gather some things. Because what we saw last week in verses 37 to 41 is this was a divine work, a divine work. God was calling people to Himself. Peter and the apostles were under the Holy Spirit's power, under the Holy Spirit's filling, and Jesus was continuing to draw people to Himself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so it was a divine work. And second of all, it was a double work. It was a double work. God was using human instruments, chiefly Peter, the leader of the twelve, preaching the Word of God, God drawing people to Himself. And God wants to use you, friend. And this is where we left last week, that those who are being changed by the gospel are instruments of God with the gospel. So the gospel, it comes in you, and then it begins to change you. And as it's changing you, you're now an instrument to call others to believe it too. So the gospel changes you it redirects you, and then that gospel now goes with you wherever you go. So I think about it like this. It's not in your notes, but three E's. You embrace the gospel by repentance and faith. God is holy. I'm not holy. Only Christ can save. And you embrace it. You believe it. You receive Christ. Then you embody it, E-M-B-O-D-Y. You embody it. It begins to shape you as a husband and a dad, a single a widow, a widower, it's in, you're embodying it. You're a gospel person. And then third of all, you begin to engage with it. So you embrace it, you embody it, and then you begin to engage with it. In 42 to 47 that our sister Kim read for us, we get a glimpse here at the interior life of the early church. And there's two D's that I want you to see today. The first one is this gospel work was a devoted work. It was a devoted work. And there's three devotions here I want you to see. The early church, they were devoted to some things. They were devoted, first of all, to teaching. Notice verse 42, and they. They would be the 3,120 people who had been saved and subsequently baptized and identified with Jesus and gone public. They, 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 they. They devoted. And the idea here in the Greek is they continually devoted. This marked them. This is what they were known by in the community. They, were devote, they devoted themselves, notice, to the apostles' teaching. Now, one might perhaps say that in this moment, the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem. The teachers were the twelve apostles, being led by the first among equals, Peter. And they together were equipping these 3,120 spiritual kindergartners. I mean, these are babies, friends. These are baby believers. This is pediatric care. This is brand new, fresh out the spiritual womb, 3,120, and they are giving themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, I want you to know that these, these disciples are obeying the words of Jesus. You remember Matthew 28? He told them to go and make converts. Is that what he said? He said, go and make disciples. And that's what they're doing here. A disciple is a learner. 
The Bible uses the word Christian three times, three times. It uses the word disciple hundreds of times. So when you think about a disciple, you're thinking about a learner. You're thinking about someone who said, I'm giving my life to follow Jesus Christ, to be his disciple. And they are making disciples. They are helping these folks not just be saved, but how to grow. Really, how do you embody the gospel? That's what they're teaching. I want you to also note that these new converts were not saying, we don't need teaching. They were not disdaining doctrine. Teaching here means doctrine. They gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine. So they don't disdain it here. They don't say, well, we have the Holy Spirit. We've had some mystical experience with the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to read. We don't need to study. We don't need theology. You know what that's called? It's called anti-intellectualism. And it's rampant in church today. Particularly where people say the Holy Spirit is really working. Well, I want to tell you something. This is fresh here. This is fresh where the Holy Spirit is, is doing gospel work. And these people are giving themselves to teaching. These people are giving themselves to studying doctrine. Because doctrine and what you believe sets you on a path of how you're going to live. The reason you live like you live is you believe certain things. So you better make sure you believe the right thing because you're going to live some way. And how you live is dependent on what you believe. In fact, how you really live is what you really believe. So you better make sure you've given yourself to that which is good and lovely and beautiful and true and actually biblical. And that's what's going on here. Um, Holy Spirit power and a desire to learn intellectually are not mutually exclusive. They actually go together. Nor do they say, well, we've received the Holy Spirit, so we don't need human teachers. We've got the Holy Spirit. We don't need anybody to teach us. That's not what they say here. It says they continually gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't say away with the human teachers. The Holy Spirit, He's enough for me. No, the Holy Spirit has empowered these gentlemen to teach these converts. These converts are newborn babies. You know what newborn babies like to do? They like to eat. Eat. You don't have to beg them to eat. You don't have to say eat. Just be around them. They want to eat. Your spiritual mouth should be open all the time. That should be inside of you. The Holy Spirit's inside of you. He's going to compel you to get your spiritual mouth open and say, I I, I need some milk. I need to be fed. I want to learn. That's where these guys are. Well, the question is, what are these guys teaching? Well, it says the Apostles' Doctrine. Now, this is probably a document referred to as the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K. This would be a collection of writings from the Old Testament, the the Torah, T, the uh, first five books. The, the, The middle would be the history books. And then Psalms and Proverbs, so the Tanakh. Look it up some other time. That's probably what's being led here. And and what Peter is doing is he's probably taking the Tanakh and he is showing these new converts how all of that was pointing to our Messiah and how he came. 
And he is, he's almost bringing them up to speed, if you will. He's bringing them up to speed on doctrine and, and how we got here. And this didn't just happen in a vacuum. And Jesus didn't just appear one day. No, he, he was planned to come. And he came. And this is how he came. He, the, 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 they're, they're most likely going over this, this Tanakh. Now, with regards to those, these believers, let, let's just kind of camp out here for a second and say, any local church worth its salt is going to teach and come under the authority of both, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. That the New Testament here is what the apostles taught and what they did, and we've come under that authority. But notice they're pointing these new converts back to affirming the Old Testament as well. And so that's why we preach through books of the Bible here. We spent a long time in Colossians. We're going to start Nehemiah, and that'll be our diet going forward. We do an Old Testament book, we do a New Testament book. We do an Old Testament book, we do a New Testament. Because both of them, all 66 books, have equal authority and all need to be used to exhort us as the people of God. Now, notice 43, because it says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, Jesus, by His presence here, is performing by the power of the Holy Spirit, miracles to authenticate that the apostles are actually from God. And, and given the, the grammar here, this all upon every soul is most likely every soul of those outside of this gathering. So people in the towns area, there were about 100,000 people, only 3,000 of more. I know 3,000 seems like a lot of people, but it was a very small minority with regards to the hundred thousands of people that were there. So there's about 70, or I'm sorry, 97,000 people walking around Jerusalem, and they're seeing this movement go on in this gathering. And God is, through the apostles, as they're teaching, doing signs and wonders through them, so the people that are walking by can see, this, this guy's legit. These people are legit. This is from God. Look at the wonders and the signs that are taking place. It, they're being confirmed. So two things here I want you to note the apostles are doing. They're teaching new converts, making disciples, and they're doing miracles to validate those outside of the gathering so that they will see this is really of God, they would believe the gospel, and they would come into the fold as well. So notice awe and were, awe and were. This was the ongoing work of the apostles in the marketplace. And so these new Christians are under the reign of the Holy Spirit. These new Christians are hungry for God's Word. I mean, they couldn't get enough of it. And let's make this connection. Where the Spirit reigns in a place, the Word of God reigns. No, notice Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, see that there. The Spirit of God working will lead us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But then notice, same idea in the twin epistle of Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Notice the Word of God goes on the front of it. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, congregation, teaching, see the same language, teaching 
and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God for Him. So, notice, being filled with God's Spirit is to be filled with God's Word. To be filled with God's Word means that you now are a, a, a product of the Holy Spirit. So, watch this now. The Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-filled life is a life that is saturated with Scripture, and that life is depending on the Holy Spirit of how to apply that Scripture they're saturated by. So when people talk about being filled with the Spirit, but there's little verses, little Bible, I, I, I don't know if they fully understand what that means. Because a Spirit-filled person will just, if you cut them, they just bleed out Bible. The Word and the Spirit, they go together. The Spirit, when people say, the Spirit led me to do this, but what they're doing disagrees with God's Word, Somebody led them, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, if you say that you really believe the Word of God, then you're going to be full of the Holy Spirit's power in your life so that you can apply that which is only true via the Word of God. So don't take the Word of God and the Spirit of God and make them enemies. They are friends. After all, the Spirit of God wrote the Word of God through human instruments. So if you want to know the will of God, give yourself to the Word of God underneath the power of the Spirit of God, and you will now be a person that pleases God. Teaching. Second of all, they gave themselves to fellowship. Notice 42, and they devoted themselves, apostles teaching, and the fellowship. Fellowship. See, the church is not a building or a place but notice, it's a fellowship. It's people doing life together. The word fellowship means sharing a bond. It means participation. But you know you can have a meal after church and have food and cookies, punch, and actually not have fellowship? Do you know that can happen? You can just have all the, the looks like, like in a fellowship hall. We have all the food and all the stuff, but there's actually no bond. There's actually no spiritual participation in doing life together. Notice the fellowship happens in two ways as we zoom out. First of all, our fellowship is around God. Notice 1 John. Write this in your margin. 1 John 1, verse 3. John says, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we're fellowshipping together with the Father and with the Son. And then notice 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. Paul commends and says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and notice this, the fellowship, the partnership, the bond of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Christian fellowship is Trinitarian. To truly fellowship as a Christian is to be cognizantly aware of the Godhead in our midst. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is worth noting that that's the reason we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First of all, because Jesus said, that's how you're supposed to do it, Matthew 28. Second of all, we've already been baptized. We've come together in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, as we fellowship together, we're doing it around God. We're doing it around every member of the Trinity. So, it's around God. Second of all, it is around 
us. It's around our sharing, mutual love, interconnectedness. Notice 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. Now, all here needs to be modified by all of the believers, all of the believers. That's what, that's what it means here. So, all is qualified by not all everyone, but all the believers, the gathering, the people, as any had need. So, as they had need, as needs arose, this is what they did. Here's the principle. Whatever we got to do to help them, we'll do it. So, the principle. Whatever we got to do to help them. Now, they go so as far to sell properties and and um, do what they got to do. But some of them still had their home, by the way. They didn't all do that. The Spirit led some of them to do it, but they didn't all just say, here's my mortgage, you want to have it? Some did that. But we practice this principle here at PVC through what we call a benevolence fund. The first Sunday of every month, we have deacons stand out here with plates and we ask our members, as you are led by the Spirit, to give to that benevolence fund so that when needs arise in the congregation, we've got some money in an account that say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pay for that. We'll, we'll, we'll help that. Since I've been here, we've, we've paid for someone's rent for a month. I mean, we, we paid for a, a, a chair so that, one of our, so that somebody could be able to actually get up a lift chair, uh, gas, it, one of the, the, the realities of church membership is we want to help you. Now, obviously, we want to help anybody, but we also partner with really good ministries in the area who have bigger resources than we do, wider scope than we do, that we want to help people get to. Ultimately, we want to give them the gospel, and we think about Love, Inc., and we think about other partners we, we work with. But this text specifically is our heart as a congregation should be, if we have someone in our midst who belongs to us and has a need, what can we do to help? How can we meet your physical, tangible need? We pray about that. We can't help everybody, but we pray and we look based on your need, based on what's there, and then we go forward. And that's really where that heart comes from is this text. Notice 46. Day by day, every day, they attended the temple together, under, this is, again, under fellowship. They attended the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice two groups here that are meeting. Temple, large group. In their home, small group. You see that? They're getting together in the temple. That would be the large gathering. But then they're getting together in homes in little groups. So there's large group time, small group time. What marked their attitude whether they joined the temple or they joined in homes, is they were glad and generous in their heart. We could say they were joyful in the Lord and they were selfless in their service. So again, notice two groups here. There's a large group gathering in the temple. Some of the Christians held on to gathering in the temple like their Jewish counterparts had done. That'll phase out as time goes on. But they gathered in the large group and then they gathered in the small group. Now, of course, a natural application of this text for our body is be committed to the public gathering. Don't forsake it. Be committed to the large group time. This is the large group time. Be committed. It's amazing to me how many people 
just miss Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I understand things come up. Vacation, that's one thing. But you should be faithfully building. Really, you can build your life around God's church or you can build your, your, your church around your life. And what God is asking is that if you belong to a place, then you begin to say, no, I, I can't do that today because I'm committed to my church. I have family come over for Christmas. Hey, you're welcome to go with us in the morning, but we're leaving at, 10, at, at 9 o'clock because we gather with our church. You show them that priority. And most importantly, it's not about that primarily. It's about following the Word of God chiefly. And as a means of that, they began to say, man, they're serious about this. And so they were devoted to fellowship. The second piece is we have our connect groups that we're seeking to get launched and off the ground. These connect groups are 8 to 12 people who are going to meet primarily in homes, just like they did, to eat, to fellowship, to study, and apply a sermon together. And so there's a form out there. I really encourage you to do that. If you're a member, you received an email from me this week with an online form. Andy and Meredith Bidlin are doing a great job putting all that together. But we just want to be connected, friends. It's very easy as our church grows numerically for you to look around and say, I don't know anybody anymore. Well, groups are the way for you to really get to know. Our Sunday morning, next Sunday, as Doug said, we're starting our gospel project, which is going to, I think, really revamp the way you read the Bible. At least it should. And so join one of those groups. Be a part of one of those groups so that you can do what they did. So teaching fellowship. Third of all, worship. Notice 42. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the breaking of bread here refers to the regular eating of the Lord's Supper or communion. At this time, they would have a large meal, and then they would use at the end of the meal leftover bread and leftover wine, and they would break and take the Lord's Supper together. And so, this idea of taking the Lord's Supper for these early Christians is they wanted to take it every time they were together because they, they wanted to keep before them the atoning work of Jesus. And, and I know some people that are opposed to taking the Lord's Supper too much. They're like, oh, if we take it every week, then it's going to lose its meaning. You hear that. But did you know anything can turn into that if you allow it to? Well, I'm not going to go to church today because I don't want it to be a routine. I'm not going to share the, share the gospel today because I don't want to get in a rut. I don't want it to. It's all about your heart, friend. It's about your heart. Now, we take the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of every month, and we think that's a good pace for now. Um, but it's about your heart. And they continually devoted themselves to teaching, broke bread together, and they took the Lord's Supper, reminding Jesus is who has brought us together. And then notice the prayers, the prayers. It really should be that because this means there were some prayers that were being handed down from Jewish people. And those written prayers were part of the formality of Jewish worship. And these Christians didn't say, well, do away with all that formality. No, they, they began to look at the prayers through new eyes, through new, with new zeal. So think Mary, the mother of Jesus, Luke chapter 1, in her Magnificat. As she has the Lord in her womb, and she magnified the Lord. You know where she got that prayer? She got it from Hannah, really. If you go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 1, 
she really rewrote Hannah's prayer under the Holy Spirit's guidance. And that would really be Mary did what, what they're doing here, taking an old prayer and revamping it. Now, you and I don't mess with Scripture. It's not what I'm saying at all. But there's a good practice here. When you see a prayer in the Bible, someone that has given a prayer, or like Nehemiah we're going to see, uh, like Solomon at the dedication of the temple, you should read those prayers and be like, those are biblical prayers. Pray those prayers. Pray that way. New life, new zeal. And then I just want to commend to you three simple works that are written by people that I think will bless you. Three books. Number one is The Valley of Vision, bottom left, The Valley of Vision. You should pick that book up. Valley of Vision is a book of prayers that Puritans wrote for every kinds of stuff in life. It's really, uh, it's part of my quiet time regularly as I read the Valley of Vision. This guy's knew how to pray biblical, man. Valley of Vision, you got to get it. Second of all is a rel relatively newer work called Every Moment Holy. So Every Moment Holy is pre-written prayers. If you're in the grocery store and it's full of lines of people, how should you pray in that moment? What should your prayer be? Well, there's some people who've thought through different scenarios of life and said, we want every moment to be holy. So you can have a prayer. You know, sometimes you ever been in a situation like, I don't know how to pray? Every moment holy helps you think about how to pray. And then finally, this new book by Trevin Wax, Jesus in 30 Days, he was the, one of the original writers of the Gospel Project back 13 years ago. He wrote this book that has three different prayers, morning, noon, and night in it. That's the way people in the, in the Bible pray, by the way, set times to pray in the morning and then at lunchtime and then at night. And he walks you through 30 days with Jesus to really revamp your prayer life. So start with the Bible, find those prayers, pray those prayers, but then zoom out and utilize some of these folks who've done a really good job helping the church. So notice it was a devoted work, teaching, fellowship, worship. And finally, this work of the gospel was a daily work, a daily work, daily work, daily work. And this is evangelism. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So remember this, their worship furthered their witness. Their worship furthered their witness. In other words, when they gathered, man, they worshiped and they scattered worshiping and praising God, and day by day, they were just inviting people to come in. They were engaging people, literally, day by day. See, their evangelism was not sporadic. It wasn't, oh, it's missions week this week, let's focus on that, or it's evangelism Sunday, let's do that. There's nothing wrong with those emphases, but they should be part of an ongoing lifestyle of a local church and then individual people who make up that church. So the Christian movement from, went from 120 to 3,000, and then in chapter 4, they go to 8,120, and then in chapter 5, most scholars say they're up to 25 to 30,000 people. So if I were to give an irreducible minimum to the early church, here it is. The early church were saved souls wanting more souls saved. The early church were saved souls who wanted more souls saved. As one man says, when lives are changed by the gospel, listen to this, discouraged people cheer up, dishonest people fess up, sour people sweeten up, closed people open up, gossipers shut up, lukewarm people get fired up, and most of all, Jesus gets lifted up. I want to be part of a church like that, don't you? So what, what is the Spirit 
Where the Spirit reigns, what does it look like? Well, in your outline there, number one, we relate to the Word. We're going to be laced on the Word. Second of all, we relate to each other. That would be fellowship. Third of all, we relate to God. That would be our, our prayer, taking the Lord's Supper. Fourth of all, would be we would relate to the world. So word, each other, God, and world. So I'll leave you with this one word of application. Our witness aids our witness. Our witness aids our witness. The more we are together, interconnected, the more effective we're going to leave here and witness for Jesus Christ. So uh, this, this work of the gospel, it is a divine work, it is a double work, it is a devoted work, and it is a daily work. Father, thank you for this incredible, incredible template of those very exciting moment and then movement when the church was birthed. God, it was truly a work that you were doing and it was a work that you added people and thank you that you've given us the same commission that you gave them to go, to tell, to make disciples. For Jesus, you came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, this church was wonderfully messy, but wonderful nonetheless. That city, Lord, Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, Lord, they were never the same because the gospel that launched out of this gathering of those who had been saved, those who had identified with you through baptism, those who took the Lord's Supper, fellowship together, prayed the prayers. I thank you, Lord, that there are some in this room right now that you want to use as your instrument to engage their neighbors and their friends, their colleagues with the gospel. Would you grant them opportunity this week? Would you grant me opportunity to this week? Would you help us, Lord, to be winsomely, graciously bold with the gospel? And would you help us relate to people that the church should be important? Gathering with people in the context of a local church, it's important to you, it should be important to all those who call you Lord. I pray, Lord, for maybe that one here today who is not certain of their salvation. They came in here wondering if they could ever really have assurance that if they died today that they would die and go and be with you for eternity. Lord, I thank you that you want every one of your children to have that assurance. So, Holy Spirit, would you grant assurance to struggling brothers or sisters in this room right now who are looking and are wondering and hoping that they've done enough. And I pray they would realize that they could never do enough. But Jesus, in his life, his death, that he sufficiently completed salvation on behalf of all those who would look to him in faith. So I pray if there's someone here today that needs to do that, that this day that they would call upon the name of the Lord, that they would be saved. That you would grant blessed assurance blessed assurance that, oh, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We ask this in Jesus' name. As we stand to our feet, let's sing this 
asking God for this blessed assurance that he wants to give each of us as we sing.